Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, Bad Dirt. What makes Bad Dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like Bad Dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. It was February 3, 1964. The icy, wintry snow of New England had taken over Manchester, New Hampshire. Before long, the story of Rena Paquette would take over the city as well. That morning, the body of the 52-year-old mother of five had been found by her son and his uncle. Since that day, her family and the community have been haunted by her mysterious death. Since February 1964, rumors have swirled across New England about the death of Rena Paquette. Despite the infamy of the case, which was brought to a growing global audience in the October 24, 1990 episode of Unsolved Mysteries, it has been almost 60 years, and still, the truth remains unknown. But Rena Paquette's story actually begins with two other deaths, 18-year-old Sandra Vallade and 14-year-old Pamela Mason. All three were murdered between the winters of 1960 and 1964 in Manchester, New Hampshire. To this day, only one of these killings has been officially solved. Even then, whether or not the one man accused of these crimes ever truly faced justice is up to debate, even now. These are the complex cases of Sandra Vallade, Pamela Mason, and Rena Paquette. I'm Kylie Lowe, and this is Dark Down East. The city we now call Manchester, New Hampshire, is located on the ancestral land of the Penacook people. It has become the largest city in northern New England, a region including Maine, Vermont, and New Hampshire. Manchester has long been a town focused on manufacturing as its biggest source of commerce. According to local lore, the city was founded in 1751 and built solely for that purpose. Originally named Derryfield, the area was renamed Manchester during the Industrial Revolution, and since then, it has adhered to its manufacturing roots, becoming a significant producer of cotton, wool, and locomotives, effectively echoing its namesake back in England. But despite its fidelity to its largest source of employment, for Manchester, the 1960s were a manufacturing downswing. Though the city was on the verge of urban renewal, it and its people did not thrive during the late 1950s and early 1960s. These times were difficult for the city, and were only made darker 
when young women and girls began to go missing. Sandra Valade was born July 12, 1941. Little is published about her childhood, though assumption can be made that she spent most of it, if not all of it, in the greater Manchester, New Hampshire area. In 1960, Sandra was 18 years old and lived with her parents just outside of city limits. She was very involved in her community. She attended swim classes with her friends at the Young Women's Christian Association, and Sandra had recently graduated and begun working full-time as a secretary at one of the factories in Manchester. Monday, February 1st, was a frigid day in Manchester. It had recently snowed, and the wind chill brought temperatures far beyond their usual point for that time of year. Sandra Valade ended her workday around 4.30 p.m. and went to a swim class and a movie with her friends before finally heading home to her parents. It was Sandra's usual routine to walk the mile home from the bus stop. But after stepping off the bus around 9.30 p.m. on February 1st, 1960, Sandra Valade was not seen alive again. Sandra was a very responsible and reliable young woman. When she did not arrive home as planned, her parents immediately began to worry. In a February 5, 1960 Nashua Telegraph article, Sandra's father, Mr. Charles Valade, expressed his concerns. He was worried that someone had seen her walking in the cold and had offered to give her a ride home. Mr. Valade recalled, quote, that happens a lot around here, end quote. If that was indeed what had happened, then whoever offered her a ride home had not taken her there. Sandra Valade was missing. New Hampshire police sent out an alert across New England, notifying other states that the young Manchester woman was missing. By February 10th, multiple state agencies, volunteers, and the National Guard began to assist in the search for Sandra. These searches and the police investigation looking for Sandra went on for over a week. Although Sandra's family and members of her community held out hope that she would be found alive, the more evidence that was discovered, the worse it appeared the outcome would be. Just a few days after she went missing, police found personal items belonging to Sandra, her wallet, her red purse, and one of her winter boots. They were apparently discarded in a 15-foot-deep canal that led to a pond described as 500 feet wide and 30 feet deep. Searches of waterways continued in hopes of finding more evidence. Soon, investigators also found Sandra's coat. It was in a snowbank, surrounded by blood-stained snow. Worries for Sandra's safety increased. According to local papers, investigators attempted to drain the pond in hopes of finding more evidence. But on February 10th, searchers found Sandra's body in a snowbank in Derry, New Hampshire, about 10 miles away from where she had gone missing. Sandra had been sexually assaulted, beaten, and stabbed. She had also been shot four times and was ultimately killed by a bullet wound. The investigation continued now with the evidence of Sandra Valade's murder. Based on wounds and other evidence on her body, police were able to identify the weapons as a knife and a 22 caliber pistol. Police continued to search the canal where they found Sandra's belongings in hopes of locating a discarded firearm or knife. 
Meanwhile, investigators also began questioning several people in the area, focusing on those who owned or used a 22 caliber pistol and those in possession of knives. The Nashua Telegraph reported that they also searched for a dark-colored vehicle with bloodstains, which had been reportedly seen driving by Sandra's house on the night of her disappearance. According to the local papers, multiple men were questioned in connection with Sandra's death. One was questioned after reportedly being seen with a knife. Although he did plead guilty to the possession of a switchblade, the police did not find any link between him and Sandra's murder. Another man was a friend of a friend of Sandra. He resided in Massachusetts at the time and was taken in for questioning due to his connection with Sandra, but the lead ultimately went nowhere. Two years after Sandra's death, police apprehended a young man after witnessing his violent attitude towards a woman. Although it had been a couple of years, his behavior made police suspicious. Still, they found that he had nothing to do with Sandra's murder. Across all the interrogations and questioning of potential suspects in the area, including a high school student and hospital escapee from the psychiatric ward, police found no connections to the ongoing homicide investigation. With leads drying up, Sandra Vallade's case went cold. But in January of 1964, the disappearance and death of another New Hampshire girl would reignite the investigation. Her name was Pamela Mason. Pamela Mason was just 14 years old in January of 1964 and a freshman at West High School in Manchester. She was smart, a straight-A student with lots of friends at school. Pamela was also said to be casually dating an 18-year-old University of New Hampshire student in Dover, New Hampshire. She often spent her weekends with him. When she wasn't spending time with her friends or her boyfriend, Pamela kept busy as one of the best and most popular babysitters in the Manchester area. In the winter of 1964, Pamela and one of her friends posted an advertisement for their babysitting services at a local coin-operated laundromat. The flyer had Pamela's home phone number on it. It was during a snowstorm on Monday, January 13, 1964, that Pamela received a call. According to Pamela's mother, the first call asking for Pamela came at around 4 p.m. that day. The man was calling to inquire about Pamela's babysitting services. Pamela's mother, Mrs. Mason, told the Valley News in West Lebanon, New Hampshire, that she asked the man to call back to speak with Pamela at a later time as she was not yet home from school. Directly after hanging up the call, Mrs. Mason left for work. She was busy that night, working as a waitress at a local restaurant, and was not able to wait for her daughter to come home to deliver the message. The Masons' neighbors later shared that they had seen Pamela arrive home between 4 p.m. and 5.45 p.m. Around 5.45, Pamela was seen entering the car of an unidentified man. To this day, her mother does not know if the person who called for Pamela earlier in the afternoon had called back. However, friends, family, and investigators assume that Pamela believed she was on her way to babysit when she got into that car that night. According to Unsolved Mysteries, though, her father later discovered that the phone number and address provided by the man calling for a babysitter 
actually belonged to an elderly couple who had no need for a babysitter. Pamela did not come home that night, and the next day, she did not show up to school. Although young, Pamela was known for her academic dedication and responsibility. When she was nowhere to be found, her parents were immediately concerned. They wasted no time in reaching out to the New Hampshire police, who promptly put out an all-points bulletin in the area to search for Pamela. According to the Nashua Telegraph and the Portsmouth Herald, police did not immediately suspect foul play in Pamela's disappearance. Instead, they theorized that Pamela may have eloped with the University of New Hampshire student she was rumored to be dating. Their investigation showed that her parents were unaware of the relationship and that she had spent the past weekend in Dover. The combination of details had police believing that the 14-year-old high school student may have run away from home to be with him. However, they contacted the young man and found that these theories were not substantiated. For eight long days, Pamela Mason was simply gone. On a Monday afternoon like any other, she had stepped into an unidentified car outside of her house and just disappeared. Despite many in-depth searches around Manchester, police could not find any evidence of Pamela. But on January 21, 1964, more than a week after she had first gone missing, a truck driver discovered the body of Pamela Mason along the highway in Manchester. The driver at first noticed her backpack and books. Confused at the sight of the school supplies in the snow, he stopped to investigate. And that's when he found her. 14-year-old Pamela Mason had been assaulted, severely beaten, and killed with a 22 caliber gun. The surface-level similarities between the death of Pamela Mason and the case of Sandra Valade were immediately clear. Their cause of death, the time of year, the location of the bodies all mirrored each other. They were both found, assaulted, and stabbed. They had both been killed with the same type of firearm and Pamela's body was found just two miles from where Sandra had been discovered. Similarities, yes, but were they connected? The commonalities between the two cases led investigators to, in some ways, pick up where they had left off four years prior. They continued looking into people in the Manchester area who owned the type of gun in question. One man in particular had been interviewed four years prior during the investigation into Sandra Valade's death. This time, in Pamela Mason's case, all leads pointed to that same man. His name was Edward H. Coolidge Jr. According to court records, Edward H. Coolidge Jr. was a 26-year-old former bakery route salesman and at that time, a delivery man. By all accounts, he was a typical, unassuming man. He had no criminal record, he worked full-time on his delivery route, and he had been married for a few years. The couple had a young daughter, who was just 17 months old in the winter of 1964. When Coolidge was initially questioned, police asked whether he owned any firearms. He produced three. Although Manchester is in northern New England, where owning firearms isn't unusual, this number of guns was alarming to police officers. They asked Coolidge to come in for a polygraph test the following day, February 2nd, and he agreed. 
While he was being questioned at the police station, other police officers returned to Edward's home with a warrant to continue gathering evidence. During the search, officers asked Edward's wife for any relevant evidence. Records indicate that she provided them with four firearms, rather than just the three that Coolidge admitted to having. She also provided investigators with the clothing that Edward had been wearing on the day of Pamela Mason's death. They collected further evidence and personal possessions, including Edward's vehicle. According to court records, Coolidge ended up spending the night in jail on unrelated charges for a theft that had come up during his polygraph test. As he sat in a cell, investigators began processing the evidence collected at the Coolidge home. But we need to back up, because before the arrest of Edward Coolidge Jr., a local woman named Rena Peckett was apparently heartbroken over the murder of Pamela Mason. By some accounts, she was obsessed with the case. Rena told friends and family and sent tips into the police claiming to know exactly who was responsible. She, too, pointed her finger at Edward H. Coolidge Jr., but she was saying his name before it was ever made public. What did Rena know? Or at least, what did Rena think she knew? And did someone make her pay for her knowledge? Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. According to family records, Rena Fernald Peckett was born in Portland, Maine in 1910. She relocated to Hookset, New Hampshire when she was a young woman. Hookset was a small town outside of Manchester at the time, and there, Rena and her husband and their five children lived comfortably on a small farm. Their property included a barn around a mile away from their main house. Rena's family remembers that during the winter of 1964, Rena was extremely interested in and concerned about the case of Pamela Mason. Pamela's body had been found not far from the Peckett farm. According to a February 5, 1964 edition of the Nashua Telegraph, Rena's husband shared that Rena had been awfully hot or upset about the case. Rena was a mama bear in every sense of the phrase, and she had children around Pamela's age. Rena was extremely frustrated with the dead ends and lack of justice for young Pamela. But beyond being a concerned citizen, Rena told her family that she had started receiving phone calls from an unknown woman. Rena claimed that the caller said 
that Rena should go to the pigsty on her farm to search for evidence in Pamela's case. The caller insinuated that Pamela had been murdered in the Paquette barn. Rena thought she had ideas and leads about what happened to Pamela, and she even believed that she had solved the case. At the center of her suspicions was local delivery man Edward Coolidge Jr., though why she felt he was responsible and how she came to her conclusion is not immediately clear. Still, she was not hesitant to share this information with family and friends, and even called the police with her tips multiple times, but was largely ignored. Police didn't pay attention to Rena Paquette until it was too late. Rena's son, Danny Paquette, was about 15 years old in the winter of 1964. He woke up on February 3rd, planning to head downstairs to have breakfast with his mother. It was their daily routine to spend mornings together. As far as Danny knew, this would be a day like any other. But when he walked down to the kitchen, he was met with an empty table. Danny found it strange that he could not find his mother anywhere in the house. It was the very beginning of February in New Hampshire, and the temperatures were well below freezing. Danny thought it was unlikely that his mom would be outside, especially since her winter clothes had been left indoors. But no matter where he looked, Danny could not find his mother. Concerned, Danny called his uncle, who was a former police officer in the Manchester area. Quickly, the two ventured outdoors and began to search the Peckett farm. As they walked across the property, calling Rena's name, Danny and his uncle saw smoke coming from the barn that housed some of the family's livestock, including the pigs. The area was a little less than a mile away from their main house on a remote section of the property. By the time the two of them arrived at the barn, Rena Paquette was dead. They found her body in the pig pen section of the barn, badly burned. Although the circumstances were suspicious, minimal investigation was done into the death of Rena Paquette. Attorney General William Maynard immediately ruled her death self-inflicted, calling it suicide by cremation, according to a 2005 story in the Sun Journal. New Hampshire police claimed that Rena had been upset about the death of Pamela Mason, her town's connection to the case, and her theories about the perpetrator. They also connected Rena's grief to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in November of the previous year. Police theorized that the combination of these events had overwhelmed Rena to the point that she decided to end her own life. But no member of Rena's family believed that could be the truth. Rena's husband, Arthur W. Paquette, told both the Valley News and the Nashua Telegraph that the family rejected Maynard's theory. Paquette claimed that his wife would not have killed herself and that suicide by cremation was an impossibility. He was certain that Rena had been murdered. What's more, he and the rest of the family were sure that it was connected to the murder of Pamela Mason. The family said that, above all, it was simply not like Rena to choose to die by suicide. Although she was upset about current events, including both the Mason murder and the Kennedy assassination, she was no more distraught than the average American at the time. 
More than that, though, the Paquettes could not wrap their heads around the details of how Rena Paquette would have ended up in that barn in the first place. The barn was far away from their house, and there was snow on the ground that morning, enough to warrant boots and a coat, yet all of Rena's winter gear was left behind when she went missing. They pointed out that no flammable items were found nearby Rena's body. Perhaps most suspiciously, they argued that the door to the barn had been closed and barricaded from the outside. At the time, no member of the police force would admit that these details added up to any conclusion other than death by suicide. Despite the protests of the family, the attorney general stood by his analysis. Maynard suggested to the Portsmouth Herald on February 12, 1964, that, quote, one of the things we might give up for Lent is rumor-mongering, end quote. Because it was ruled suicide, no further investigation was made into the death of Rena Paquette. Her family and their town were forced to accept the idea or simply move on. But in the end, despite police dismissing her personal theories of the Pamela Mason case, Rena would actually be proven right. The crime lab processed numerous pieces of evidence collected from the home of Edward Coolidge to see if there was any trace of Pamela Mason, anything that would signal they had their guy. And they'd find more than enough to seek his arrest. Investigators found what they believed to be Pamela Mason's hair on Edward Coolidge Jr.'s clothing. They also found a Mossberg 22 caliber rifle, Ballistic examinations revealed that it was likely the weapon that had been used to kill Pamela Mason. In addition to hard evidence, Coolidge's alibi was weak. He claimed his car was stuck on Route 93 the night of Pamela's disappearance. This story was partially substantiated by a couple who had helped him push his car out of the snow. However, the couple said that it was a time closer to when Pamela had gone missing and at a spot much closer to where her body was found. All suspicion and evidence pointed to Coolidge, and his alibi did not hold water. Unlike the questioning in Sandra Valade's case four years prior, Coolidge could not convince investigators that he was not responsible for the death of Pamela Mason. With that, police turned to the state attorney general William Maynard for the indictment. Police arrested Edward Coolidge Jr. on February 19, 1964. And on February 27, 1964, weeks after Rena Paquette's body was found in her family's barn, Edward Coolidge Jr. confessed to the murder of Pamela Mason, just as Rena had theorized. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.
They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Four years after the death of Pamela Mason, Edward Coolidge stood trial for her murder. According to court records of the State v. Edward H. Coolidge Jr. case, despite efforts on the part of the defense to remove all evidence from the trial, the state came fully prepared. Though some said the case was largely held up by circumstantial evidence, the state presented those personal possessions, including clothing and vehicles, that had been collected from Coolidge's home in 1964 as evidence. Via microscopic analysis, they showed that these items had been in contact with Pamela. They also provided ballistics and gunpowder analysis to display the similarities between Coolidge's Mossberg 22 caliber rifle and the weapon that had been used to end Pamela's life. But Coolidge's defense doubled down on their claim that the evidence was circumstantial. They argued that the presentation of the evidence violated Coolidge's constitutional rights because it allowed the jury to speculate outside of the evidence. However, these arguments were overruled. Arguments began in December of 1968, almost five years after Pamela's death, and did not end until the summer of 1969. In July of that year, Edward H. Coolidge Jr. was found guilty and convicted of the murder of Pamela Mason. He was sentenced to life imprisonment, finally bringing some version of closure to the family of the young girl. A perpetrator was successfully prosecuted and convicted of his crime. But somehow, Edward Coolidge Jr. did not spend his full life in prison. In January of 1971, less than two years after being convicted of murder, Coolidge sued the state of New Hampshire in the case of Coolidge v. New Hampshire. In this lawsuit, Coolidge and his lawyers attempted to appeal his conviction on a technicality. They argued that when Coolidge had been interviewed by the police in February of 1964, he had been cooperating with the legal system, but by approaching his wife, and confiscating his personal possessions while he was absent, police had violated Coolidge's rights. Coolidge and his lawyer claimed that this seizure of property had happened outside the judicial process. Furthermore, because the search warrant for his vehicle had been signed by State Attorney General William Maynard, the Fourth Amendment had been violated. According to the case text, they argued that the warrant had not been issued by a neutral and detached magistrate. Maynard was involved in the investigation, signed the warrant, and later became the prosecutor for the case. Altogether, this meant that a conflict of interest had taken place. By June 1971, a court ruled that the warrant should have been signed by a neutral third party. Edward Coolidge's sentence was shortened from life in prison to just 25 to 40 years. By 1991, Serving just over 20 years, Edward Coolidge was released on conditional parole, 
and was again a free man. According to an archived article from the United Press International, the day of Coolidge's parole hearing was emotional. Pamela Mason's father, David Mason, expressed his frustration and anger. He had collected thousands of signatures in opposition to Coolidge's parole, but somehow it had not been enough. The man who had been convicted of murdering his daughter was free on a technicality. The same year that Edward Coolidge was officially released from prison, despite being convicted of assault and murder, more developments came in the case of Rena Paquette. Thanks to continued pressure from the Paquette family and their lack of subscription to Maynard's suicide theory, Rena's body was exhumed in 1991. Along with being exhumed, her autopsy and information connected to her case was also reviewed. Based on the information from this review, it was clear that Rena had not died by suicide. In fact, police officers who had been involved in the investigation at the time later admitted that they had not believed this was the case. They too had found it suspicious, but had stayed quiet. According to 2005 reporting by the Lewiston Sun-Journal and New Hampshire Union Leader, the medical examiner's office located Rena Paquette's original autopsy report in 1991. The autopsy revealed that evidence of semen was found on Rena's body, and it appeared her arms had been bound. Other investigative documents within the original case file noted that two logs had been placed outside the gate of the pigsty, so it could not be opened from the inside. Following the review of her case in 1991, Rena's cause of death was officially changed from suicide to undetermined. To this day, there is no official determination of the cause of Rena Paquette's death. The review of these records, combined with the claims from detectives that they never believed that Rena Paquette had died by suicide, led some to speculate if this was a cover-up. Some members of the Paquette family still believe that Rena was murdered by Edward Coolidge Jr. because she knew too much, but Coolidge continues to disregard these accusations. Beyond circumstantial evidence, suspicion, and rumor, there is no proof to substantiate the claim. The nearly six decades after the death of Rena Paquette have not been easy for her family. Danny Paquette, the son who found his mother's body in the barn on their property, struggled to move on. According to reports, Danny Paquette suffered emotionally for years. Though he grew up, married, and had a daughter, the marriage was unsuccessful. He continued to struggle, especially after his divorce. According to Unsolved Mysteries, during this time of hardship, Danny Paquette spent some time in a psychiatric hospital. There, he was hypnotized. And while under hypnosis, he claimed to begin to recall details from the day of his mother's death. He remembered waking up before breakfast and walking quietly to the edge of the stairs. He claimed that he remembered overhearing his mother arguing with a man and the argument becoming more heated. Danny was one of the members of Rena's family who believed that his mother's case was correlated with those of Sandra Valade, 
and Pamela Mason. Not long after his experience with hypnosis at the hospital, in 1984, Danny Peckett himself was shot and killed. Danny was found in his truck in a rock quarry. When police began to investigate, they looked into the possibility that the shooting had been an accident from a hunter in the nearby forest. They could not find any evidence either way, though, and Danny Peckett's death became yet another rumor-fueling event in the family. Some believed that Daniel's recovered memories meant that he knew too much. For this reason, they suspected that Danny had been the target of an ongoing cover-up. For over 20 years, these rumors continued to cast a shadow over the Peckett family. But in 2006, Danny's murder was ultimately solved. A young man who had been dating Danny's daughter finally admitted to the shooting, expressing regret for his actions. Although some continue to connect Danny's death with the murder perpetrated by Edward Coolidge Jr., evidence indicates that this was a separate, though still tragic, occurrence. The stories of Sandra Vallade, Pamela Mason, Rena Paquette, and Danny Paquette have received significant amounts of attention in Manchester, in New Hampshire, as well as internationally due to the airing of Unsolved Mysteries. The compelling connections and intertwining details also seem to overlap with multiple other major cases in New Hampshire at the time. The closer you look, the more that this web of tragedy and crime in Manchester, New Hampshire between 1960 and 1984 continues to expand. Although someone was charged and convicted, a development that not every case includes, there was only enough evidence to charge him in one murder, despite the potential connections that have swirled in the rumor mill for decades. There's a detail that deserves mention. In the case of Sandra Vallade, additional testing showed that the 22 caliber rifle used in Pamela's murder was also likely the weapon used to kill Sandra Vallade. But Edward Coolidge Jr. argued that he won that particular rifle in a raffle the year after Sandra Vallade was killed. The prosecutor, William Maynard, said that the rifle did not have a serial number, so they could not verify that Coolidge had not received the firearm until 1961. Nevertheless, the evidence wasn't enough, and the charge for the death of Sandra Vallade was dropped. Her case, along with Rena Paquette's, remains unsolved. Despite the initial justice for the family of Pamela Mason, Coolidge was soon able to live the remainder of his life free due to a technicality on the part of the state. Information about Coolidge, his career, and his family is widely available across multiple sources. There are full Wikipedia pages dedicated to his crimes and court proceedings. But in all the news coverage available about these cases, very few authors share anything substantial about the victims themselves. Papers in 1960 simply called Sandra Vallade pretty. Pamela Mason was largely remembered as a babysitter, and more articles were published about the possibility of Pamela eloping than about her death. Rena Paquette was described, more than anything, as a housewife. These three women deserve to be remembered as a complete human being. They were each loved. They were kind and passionate. They were mothers and daughters. They were sisters. They each had a lot of life to live ahead of them, and that life was stolen away far too soon with minimal retribution. 
and the ripple effect that continues to impact their families, their communities, and the city of Manchester, New Hampshire, to this day. Witnesses or persons with information about any of New Hampshire's unsolved cases should contact the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit using the tip form linked in the show notes and description of this episode, or by calling 603-271-2663. Thank you for listening to Dark Down East. This episode was researched and written by Natalie Jones, with additional research, writing, production, and editing by me, Kylie Lowe. Sources for this episode include reporting in the Nashua Telegraph, Associated Press, New Hampshire Union Leader, original case documents, and more. All sources cited and referenced for this episode are listed at darkdowneast.com. Thank you for supporting this show and allowing me to do what I do. I'm honored to use this platform for the families and friends who have lost their loved ones, and for those who are still searching for answers in cold missing persons and homicide cases. I'm not about to let those names, or their stories, get lost with time. I'm Kylie Lowe, and this is Dark Down East. The Living Room is where you make some of life's most beautiful memories but your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant high-performance furniture from Ashley Store is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley Store's high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, comfortable, and easy to clean for more mess and less stress. Shop the life-resistant high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.